Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. Dr. Vinay Prasad here from the University of California, San Francisco. By request, I'm going to talk about that science paper everyone's been buzzing about. This is where they took metastatic melanoma patients who had progressed on PD-1 or PD-L1 therapy. They reintroduced nivolumab, but topped it off with a fecal transplant, and they got 30% response rate, and everyone was celebrating. This is the power of the microbiome, and we're finally harnessing it. Well, are we? I took a look at this paper, and let me show you what I found about it. Here it is, of course, science, the creme de la creme of the biomedical literature. But don't think about that because this is fecal microbiota transplant, promoting response in immunotherapy refractory melanoma patients. What do you need to know about this? You need to know that PDL1 and PD1 drugs are used in metastatic melanoma. There's a fraction of people with long-term durable response. And probably of all the tumor types, the responders in this malignancy, we know the most about, and we know that there's a certain durability. Whether or not that applies to everything equally, it's a bit of a question mark. But here we do know there is a fraction, long-term durable responders. Well, not those people entered this study. In other words, people who had progressed on checkpoint inhibitor therapy entered this study. They progressed on PD-1 therapy. And in this study, they took stool from two patients who were complete responders with a fairly decent PFS. And they took their stool and they transplanted it in 10 people who did not achieve response to PD-1 therapy initially, and they washed it down with some nivolumab, and they looked to see what the response rate was. And lo and behold, it was 30%. And that made people really excited that fecal transplant might be able to unlock the immune system in some way we don't know, and maybe that all those millions of dollars of investment in sequencing this stool was not for naught. Well, here's the problem with it. Um, I'll hold off on the problem for a second and give you one more bit of background. I mean, I don't think people fully appreciate, but the market share of these checkpoint inhibitor drugs is massive. I mean, pembrolizumab is uh, on track to hit $100 billion cumulative revenue long before anything else ever did. Um, this is a paper that Allison Haslam and I did where we just sought to estimate the upper bound of the percent of US cancer patients who are eligible for checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And so what we did is we looked at all the checkpoint inhibitor approvals and boy, there were a lot of them. And here's what we found. We found that if this vertical bar represents every U.S. cancer patient who might otherwise have died of cancer in the year 2018, we found that about 43% of U.S. cancer patients were eligible. Melanoma, of which immunotherapy is best known and maybe even 
and first brought to market in, um, it's only about 1% of all cancer deaths. So it doesn't account for the lion's share of their revenue. That is lung cancer, my friend. Lung cancer is much more common and the PD-1 and pd one drugs are cleaning up in the lung cancer business. It also has uh, use in all these other malignancies. Uh, Merkel cell, you know, that's not exactly the largest market share, uh, but uh, HCC with the Tezobev, you know, they have, uh, they have quite some market share there. So 43% are eligible. Let me show you one more figure so you get some sense of this. Um, you know, the, 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 the short graph, the bottom graph, this is the uptake. The blue line shows the uptake of genome-targeted drugs over the last uh, 15, 20 years. If you plot it out to 2020 like we did in an Annals of Oncology paper, it's right on that line. We've had modest uptake. We're, we're close to you know 10% of all U.S. cancer patients are eligible for a genome-targeted drug. But look at checkpoint inhibitors. 2011 to 2014, we just had IPI, melanoma, and then boom, we had PD-1 in non-small cell lung cancer, and we got small cell and HCC, et cetera, et cetera. And here's the Merkel and the PMBL at the tip of it. Um, it's brought the market share up to about 40% of U.S. cancer patients. Now, of course, this assumes everyone can afford the drugs and has access to assumptions that aren't true in this cruel and horrible U.S. marketplace. However, this this is the lay of the land. So back to the paper. The paper basically took those 10 people who had progressed on PD-1 therapy. It gave them some period of time. I think it was like 90 days. They made them swallow a fistful of antibiotics. I think Vank and Neomycin, something nasty to quote, clean out their gut flora. And then they transplanted the stool of these two responders into them. And then they washed it down with six cycles of nivolumab. And here's what they found. Three out of 10 people, all who happened to have gotten the stool from donor one, thank you very much. They had, according to the spider plot, a response. I actually, now that I look at it, I wonder if number seven actually meets resist 1.1 responder criteria because that requires two measurements below 30%, not just one. Um, but R5, but patient five and patient three clearly do. So those were responders. Well, the first question you would have is, well, what would have happened to these people if they didn't get the fecal transplant and just got nivolumab again? What would have happened to them? What would their response rate been? And I'll promise you, it's not 0%. Reintroducing active drugs in malignancy in cohorts of people that enroll in clinical trials where there's a lot of delays along the way, there's going to be a fraction of people who are once again susceptible to that drug. It's true of any drug. It's also true of immunotherapy drugs. So what would the response rate have been? Well, if you were a real scientist, you would randomize patients because that would give you the cleanest signal. And I think someday we might see that. But I would have randomized right up front and early because I want to know the answer very quick. Otherwise, I'm chasing, I'm chasing a ghost with fecal transplant. Uh, quite an unpleasant ghost, if you ask me. Um, but you're chasing it. And here's what they did. They actually, in their own paper, they talk about uh, that they did a little bit of a literature search to look to see what the response rate would have been. And here's what they find. They find some paper by Betoff Warner et al. And they report that the response rates of metastatic melanoma patients who were reintroduced with anti-PD-1 monotherapy were five out of 34 or less than 15%. And then they make up some reason why they think that's an overestimate. So I thought to myself, wow, it was only going to be less than 15%. By the way, less than 15% here is, I think, 14%, which is really kind of 15%. But you got 30%, three out of 10. Is that enough to hang your hat on? I have my doubts, but I decided to take a little bit more of a look. So I pulled up the Badoff Warner paper. Here it is, long-term outcomes and responses. And indeed, in the abstract, they, they pull out that fact. Response with reintroduction of PD-1 drugs was seen in five out of 34 retreated patients with single-agent anti-PD-1 therapy. So that's the percent they're giving. But you know what else I did? I actually read the paper. 
And would you believe that in the discussion, they had written more about this topic? And let me read it to you. When considering treatment discontinuation, patients often inquire about resuming anti-PD-1 therapy if their disease were to progress in the future. Of course they do. It's a natural question. Data regarding outcomes of patients with melanoma who receive a second course of PD-1 are scarce. But here are three data points. One, Keynote 006, eight people with initial CR were treated with a second course, and four had PRCR. Hamid, four patients were treated with a second course. All four had CR, but one had tumor shrinkage in response to treatment. Um, all four had CR initially, and only one with reintroduction had response. And then finally, a cohort of 19 people where six people responded. So let me put those numbers here. Four out of eight, 50%. One out of four, 25%. Six out of 19, 32%. And what does the science paper celebrating? Three out of 10, 30%. It's all in the same ballpark, people. It's all in the same ballpark. This science paper, what, this is ridiculous. The first question any reasonable person would ask is what would have the response rate been if you just gave the nivolumab and didn't do the fecal transplant and you haven't even done a cursory literature search to show that you're more or less in the same ballpark. Do I think you're higher? No. Do I think you're lower? Not necessarily. These are super small numbers. I have no clue. You need a much bigger sample size. You need to randomize before you make any such claim. Now you can sequence all the stool you want. And I know you did. And I found changes in patterns of stool, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. I want to see that by doing this thing, you actually increase the response rate over what otherwise would have been. And that's a very simple study. Randomized control trial. Come on. It's not that hard to do. Why can't we randomize? Why are we celebrating this result? We haven't even tested the scientific question of whether fecal transplant augments this or not. We have no clue. And three out of 10 responders, that's meaningless when I've shown you at least four case series where it's in roughly the same ballpark. This is a joke. I'm really surprised by it, actually. The authors of this paper, they have more time to think about this topic than I do. Surely they would have read all of the other prior reports and they would have known that three out of 10 is roughly in the same ballpark. I find it hard to believe. What am I to think when they don't report that in their manuscript? What am I to think of the editor process in science? So focused on basic science, it misses the forest for the trees. The forest is, well, what would the response rate have been? And you can look that up. And in fact, you kind of need to bolster that with, with more data. So what should a future study look like? Well, a randomized controlled trial of reintroduction of PD-1 drugs, and one arm gets a fecal transplant too. You can get whoever stool you wish. And the other arm, you can do a, a sham fecal transplant, I suppose. You can give them back their own stool. Um, maybe you have a third arm where you don't do a fecal transplant at all. Um, maybe you have one arm where you just do a fecal transplant, you don't give the PD-1 drug. I promise you that response rate is probably gonna be close to zero. That's what I would bet. And if I were to bet on this field, I suspect that if you actually did a really large, robust, randomized trial anywhere in oncology, you can pick any drug, you can pick any transplant, you can pick anything you want, and you randomize a thousand people to whatever you do in oncology that actually benefits them, plus or minus fecal transplant, I would find it very hard to believe that fecal transplant actually improves outcomes in anything. And if it does, it'll probably do so about five out of a hundred times because that's the nominally significant p-value you're going to pick. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm skeptical that all it took was a little bit of stool after a fistful of vancomycin and neomycin. And I certainly think this paper, it doesn't prove, pardon, pardon the pun, doesn't prove shit. And that's it really doesn't. And I have no idea why it's in science. And I have no idea why anyone cares about it. And I have no idea why there's not more people pointing out the fact that there's got to be some response rate if you just gave the nivolumab and what does the fecal transplant add? And that is the question. So on that positive note, this is, uh, this is the end of this video.
If you enjoyed the video, subscribe to the channel, give us a comment or a like, and listen to Planner Session Podcast for more similar insights. Dr. Vinay Prasad here, and I'm back to discuss the vision trial. This is Lutetium 177 PSMA. This is the New England Journal of Medicine paper, and people are buzzing about it because what do we love the most in this world of oncology? Radionucleotides, am I right? Well, this is a very interesting, interesting paper. So let me walk you through what I found about it and uh, why I say it's really quite something, quite something that I've read. So here it is. Lutetium, 177 PSMA, metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. Now, we know the prostate cancer landscape has changed a lot since I trained in oncology when all we had was Tanox's legendary paper of docetaxel. Now we have a lot of other options. Some are quite good and improve overall survival, such as abiraterone and enzalutamide. And now we have Lutetium, 177 PSMA. This is an active compound. No one doubts that. It can generate responses. This randomized trial purports to show how it can be used to leverage improved patient outcomes. And I've got some concerns about it. So let me walk you through. First of all, what do they do? Long story short, they took people who had PSMA positive metastatic cancer resistant disease on PSMA PET that was defined as at least one PSMA positive lesion and no PSMA negative lesions. And they have some criteria for what counts as a PSMA negative lesion, depending on the size and, and the uptake. But be that as it may, what you need to know is that of a thousand people who got screened with this PSMA PET scan, which by the way, it's not available everywhere, but they'd like it to be someday, 82% were eligible for this study. So it's not everybody with metastatic crash resistant prostate cancer. You have to meet this PSMA inclusion criteria. You were then randomized to receive lutetium PSMA plus standard care. They call it standard care versus standard care alone. Well, that's where things get interesting. What the hell exactly counts as standard care? I started to read this paper and I got a little bit perplexed. Uh, but first, I should show you the main result. The main result, of course, is that they have a whopping imaging-based PFS benefit, a OS benefit that is a four-month OS benefit that's not uh, to be sneezed at. That's a real benefit. Um, but it's contingent on the particular control arm, which we're going to talk about. What's the problem? Here's the problem. Standard care therapies could not include cytotoxic chemotherapy. So no cabazitaxel. It couldn't include systemic radioisotopes, such as radium-223. No, you're not allowed. It couldn't include immunotherapy or drugs that were investigational when this trial progressed, such as elaparib for the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2. Let's not talk about ATM, uh, but for BRCA1, BRCA2, or other homologous recombination deficiency repair problems. Permitted treatments were not restricted to the approved, oh, so this is what they could include, hormonal treatments, including abiraterone and enzalutamide. Well, unfortunately, you've had at least one and the other one's not so great when you've had one, and some people have had both. You could, of course, get the standard treatment for prostate cancer of a bisphosphonate. Yeah, last I checked, that improves skeletal-related events, but that's not exactly an anti-cancer treatment, okay? Radiation therapy, palliative radiation for metastatic disease, yeah, that's not exactly my go-to systemic therapy. Denosumab, oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for the denosumab, or glucocorticoids at any dose. Oh, you can have whatever dose glucocorticoid you want. Good, good. Uh, uh, all terrible, terrible treatments for this population. Nobody would ever want to give any of these things, but you can give them in combination with um, your lutetium PSMA. And in fact, people had had a lot of these treatments before. So these are the number of people who had an androgen receptor pathway inhibitor. 55% had at least one regimen, about 40% had had two. 
So now that you've had two, you've had Enza and Abby, you can get Enza again. Bravo. This is a lot like profound, as in profoundly bad. This is a bad control arm. Nobody would want to do this. Previous taxing therapies. 50% of the people in this study had only seen docetaxel. 97% of those people had seen, do it's, it's largely docetaxel. So about half had seen docetaxel. And maybe 40% had seen two regimens, which might have been docetaxel, paclitaxel. We don't know. Um, but uh, of that, 40% had seen cabazzi. So we have some sense of, of dosi, cabazzi. They might as well have just listed paclitaxel, so it would have been obvious to everybody. Um, what does this mean? This means this is the population where 50% of people could have gotten cabazitaxel, which is probably what a lot of people would do in the real world. Why? Because the CARD trial, where cabazitaxel tested against an androgen signaling inhibitor, has a survival benefit of a couple months. So this control arm, they're deprived of a standard of care therapy. Now, imagine I was a patient enrolling on this study or a doctor. Well, a doctor, I would, wouldn't have a lot of respect for myself to enroll on this study because it is an unethical, egregious, and horrible control arm. But if I was a patient enrolling on this study and I learned that I'd been randomized to the control arm that prevented me from taking a lot of life-prolonging drugs um, for a capricious reason, I might say, to hell with this study, I'm dropping out. And in fact, that's what happened. But before I get to that, I wanna point out one thing. This phenomenon of a poor control arm is quite popular in the literature. This is an analysis that Derek Tao and I did uh, a couple of years ago in the Lancet Oncology. We asked, are we testing trivialities? When you test your novel drug against old drugs or restrictions on drugs um, in ways that we don't actually practice. Later, Halal Halal, who's now in Mississippi, he led this paper that we published in JAM Oncology, Analysis of Control Arm Quality. We looked at all the US Food and Drug Administration approvals that were based on randomized control trials, maybe about two thirds. We looked at those control arms. We found roughly one in five are problematic control arms. This is one of them. And if you look at genitourinary, y'all not doing so well, GU docs. Two out of every three are good, but one out of every three trials you're running is a suboptimal control arm. And this study, vision, fits right there. So what happened? Indeed, what happened, patients did exactly what I suspected they would do. After the trial started, a high incidence of withdrawal from the trial was noted in the control group and at certain sites, probably sites where they have other options, and was attributed principally to patient disappointment. That's not so good. You can't run a trial with a control arm so lousy that patients are literally disappointed and withdraw consent when they match under the control arm. After discussion with regulatory authorities, we implemented enhanced trial site education measures. Oh, indoctrination on March 5th, 2019 to reduce the incidence of withdrawal. So we tried to indoctrinate patients to stay on our lousy unethical control arm. That's what you did? How is that acceptable? And you discussed it with regulators. Did they approve of this? Or did you just mention you might do this? This is, this is disgraceful. I find that very disgraceful. Look, the percent of patients in the control group who discontinued the trial without receiving the randomly side treatment was 56% of patients before the implementation of these measures. 56%? Get out of here. That's astonishingly high. And I'm about to show you some empirical data that shows just how horribly high that is. Patients are sniffing out that you're giving them a dilapidated, delinquent, and unethical control arm. And after you did your brainwashing sessions on them, you dropped it down to 16.3%. How is this ethical? You're indoctrinating them to stay on this lousy study, even though they've been assigned to arguably detrimental malpractice standard of care. And in the intervention arm, it was 1.2% and 4.2%. Everyone's happy to get your lutetium PSMA. That's why they're enrolling on the study. So let's put this in perspective. Thankfully, we have a paper that actually can help put this in perspective. This is Kate Rosen, medical student at OHSU, Emerson Chen, now faculty at OHSU, and myself. We looked at all 
trials that were published in one journal where you can actually find out how many people are censored or lost to the study at every single time point. And this was based on the Lancet Oncologies, which has a, a practice of reporting censored patients in brackets, which my understanding is was pushed for by Tito Foho, my old and great program director. Here's what you need to know. When you look at Kaplan-Meier curve, there are people at risk at every time point. And at the next time point, uh, there's a fewer number of people at risk. There's one of four reasons, you know, your one of four things can happen to you at any time point in a Kaplan-Meier curve. One, you can experience the event of interest. That's when there's a little tick down. Two, you can continue to be at risk for the event of interest. So that's, you're in the denominator. Or three, you're censored. And there's two reasons you can be censored. You haven't been followed long enough or you've been lost to follow up or you dropped out. And those are the four things that can happen at any time point. Here in brackets, in the Lancet Oncology Journals, they actually tell you how many people experience events three and four. So we can figure out how many people are censored at every time point. And you can start to see that if there's imbalances in censoring, if there's a lot more people censored in one arm than the other, that's not attributable to late enrollment. Late enrollment will be balanced between the two arms because surprise, surprise, it's randomized. So that should be balanced. It's attributable to people withdrawing for other reasons. So our paper has many, many figures and you should read it. And there's a lot of points that are, that are worth discussing. But for this paper, I'll only show one pain of one figure, and that's this pain. This is the difference in the number of patients censored at a very early time point in the study. So in other words, dots to the right show you that there are more patients who are censored or fall off the study in the control arm early on, then dots to the left show more patients on the intervention arm fall off very early. And what you see here is the weighted average is slightly right of center. And this is, this is patient disappointment. This is patients who are assigned to control arms that they drop out the study, they drop out early. And I think we see that when you look at aggregate data, of course, the vertical axis here is the sample size of the study and the uh, horizontal axis is the difference between the two arms. Right means more control arm censoring, left means more intervention arm censoring. Okay, so that's what you're looking at here. So there is a trend. There is this thing called patient disappointment. I think it exists. I think we've proven it in this paper. Now, let me show you where vision trial falls. Vision. It's way the hell out here. Look at that. 50% it's off the charts. I've never seen anything like it. And even after their indoctrination sessions to cajole and deceive patients into participating in your unethical control arm, you still drop it down pretty close to, I think that other dot is quizartinib um, in leukemia. And by the way, that quizartinib issue that came to an FDA discussion and they actually didn't approve it because of this horrific imbalance in censoring at that early time point, suggesting massive withdrawal, which means all your downstream endpoints are a little bit unreliable because you have induced imbalance into your randomized control trial. Anyway, this is bad. This is off the charts bad. Everyone knew this was bad. The patients knew it was bad. Maybe even the investigators knew it was bad. This is almost unjustifiably bad. The rationale, and this is how they try to they try to explain it to themselves. The rationale for the exclusion of certain treatments was that the safety profile of these therapies had not been established in combination with lutetium PSMA. Well, that's your fault. You need to do that. Do that before you run your study. Or that justifies lutetium PSMA with a limited number of drugs on the intervention arm, but what justifies handicapping the control arm to delinquent therapy? You can allow the control arm to get cabazitaxel too. The trial aimed to assess the effect. Oh, I don't want to read that. That's boring me. Patients who received only one taxane were ineligible if they were deemed at baseline to be candidates for receiving a second taxane. Is that true? 
So if they had only received docetaxel, but they could have received cabazitaxel, then they were ineligible for your study? I don't think that's true. Here's why I don't think that's true. Because after your study occurred, 38 or 20% of the people who got any post-protocol care got cabazitaxel. Surely after their time was wasted on your negligent control arm, if they can still get cabazitaxel, they could have gotten cabazitaxel before they participated in your study, surely. So I think I disagree with that statement. I don't think that's accurate. So what's my takeaway? of this lutetium PSMA study. I really don't like it. In fact, I spilled my coffee all over it because I spit it out when I read this study. This is, this is bad. This is a big problem. Now, people who like this drug will say, well, we just wanted to show it had activity. You don't need a control arm to show it has activity. You can show it has activity by giving it to people and showing a response rate. No one doubts that you're incredibly high dose radionucleotide is gonna have activity, okay? I don't really doubt that that's the case. What I wanna know is in the landscape of prostate cancer, how can I use this drug to improve survival or quality of life for my patients? Now, you might say your trial's control arm reflects the standard of care globally. I'll tell you what, the places where this control arm reflects the standard of care, they can't afford your lutetium PSMA. They don't have a PSMA PET scanner. This only applies to this country, the United States, where we're gonna spend the horrific amounts of money on your drug. So you need to use a control arm that's appropriate for our country. I find this study disgraceful. It's emblematic of all the problems in oncology. You are showing how disgraceful it is when the patients are throwing in the towel the moment they learn they get assigned to the control arm. Vision trial, get out of here. I see right through it. The New England Journal of Medicine, they did one thing. They changed, I suspect they changed the abstract to say protocol permitted standard of care. I bet that wasn't on the original medical writer version. I suspect they made them say that, but that's not drawing a line in the sand. The journal has abdicated their responsibility. The profession has abdicated their responsibility. These types of studies are not what we need in oncology. So the vision trial, two thumbs down. And if I see any more prostate cancer studies like this, you're gonna get this treatment on this, uh, on this show and maybe somebody might be persuaded by it. So on that negative note, we will turn to the next topic and um, a future video. So if you like this video, subscribe to the channel, check out Plenary Session Podcast, read the book Malignant. It describes many such examples and uh, this is all, this is the same old trick. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>